Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. As always, we have a lot to tell you. We're going to talk about uh, all the latest developments uh, surrounding Ukraine, including sanctions and military moves. We're going to talk about uh, the economy, the stock market, which is just plummeting today after jumping yesterday. It's going to be one of those periods again. We're going to talk about world health. Uh, we're going to talk with Chris Garafa about uh, tech issues. And before we get to those stories, there are a few other things in the headlines that we wanted our listeners to know about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also just want to say, I just noticed this right now, but uh, Chris Smalls, president of the Amazon Labor Union, is, uh, as we speak, testifying before the Senate uh, Budget Committee. I think that's very exciting. Uh, it is pretty exciting. And like, honestly, what a what a trajectory. Mm-hmm. So hope it continues. Obviously, there was a little bit of a setback. Um, I'm thinking we might be able to talk to Chris before he leaves D.C., uh, possibly I on Monday. So. so keep your ears open. Yeah, but, that would be uh, great. Yeah, he is ad- addressing the Senate Budget Committee. I suspect at the invitation of Bernie Sanders, although I'm not entirely sure, but he also announced that. So pretty cool. Also in Senate News... Uh, there was some grilling going on yesterday yeah. of Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. And I have to say, you know, it, it is Rand Paul who usually gets attention for doing these kinds of things. And he's mm-hmm. right in, in many points, although not all. But it is pretty frustrating to see how the, the resistance to the creation of this new disinformation board, mm-hmm. which is now a working group and just a sort of play club for friends. It's <laughs> yeah. so really been downgraded. My is saying he's not doing that. But it's sad that the resistance, it, it's all coming from Republicans from what I can see. Yeah, it's and, all and, coming from Republicans. And I can't help but to think that this whole disinformation thing is is a red herring, mm-hmm. you know, and the Democrats are being disingenuous. They're lying to us. Nobody's been honest so far. I hate when the Democrats force me to agree with Rand Paul. Yeah. yeah. But that's the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. And I mean, I have some clips from this discussion yesterday that I think are edifying and also uh, illustrate some of the problem. And the first, of course, Rand, Rand Paul um, is talking to Mayorkas. He grills Mayorkas on whether the Steele dossier was or was not, in fact, Russian disinformation mm-hmm. the whole time. And Mayorkas demurs. He keeps trying to uh, bring the conversation back to the border, which is what they've been saying this is about uh, from the beginning, again, quite disingenuously, I think. Uh, and what is gratifying here is to hear Rand Paul uh, lighting into the idea that government should be determining what is true or not. And so here's a little bit of what Rand Paul had to say to Mayorkas yesterday on the Senate floor. I think you've got no idea what disinformation is, and I don't think the government's capable of it. Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government. Are you familiar with McNamara, the <laughs> Pentagon Papers? Are you familiar with George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction? Are you familiar with Iran-Contra? I mean, think of all the debates and disputes we've had over the last 50 years in our country. We work them out by debating them. We don't work them out by the government being the arbiter. I don't want you guardrails. I want you to have nothing to do with speech. You think we can't determine, you know, speech by traffickers is disinformation? You think the American people are so stupid they need you to tell them what the truth is? You can't even admit what the truth is with the Steele dossier. I don't trust government to figure out what the truth is. Government is largely disseminating disinformation. 
I mean, okay, Amen. this is a Homeland Security uh, uh, committee hearing. Yeah, uh, look, that is gratifying to hear. It is gratifying to hear, a, a, you know, a, a pretty powerful senator stand up and say Russiagate was nonsense, Iran-Contra was nonsense, yellow cake uranium was mm-hmm. nonsense, and we pushed that, you know, and to be honest about that. However, uh, you know, I don't think that government is mainly pushing this information. You know what I mean? It, it's sort of like it's a, it's a shame that these are the people who are who are pushing back in any way on this because, you know, there are always it's like, well, well, I don't think all I don't think vaccines are disinformation. I, I there are people I respect very much who are more question, you know, doubtful than I am. But I don't think so. I do think there's, a you know, there's some role for, you know, like not yelling fire in a crowded theater. Of course. Okay. Of course. Yeah. But but everything that Rand Paul said was was true. And as I said, this this is a slippery slope, this disinformation thing. Mm-hmm. As we saw this week with uh with consortium news and PayPal. I don't want anybody telling me what I can and cannot read, mm-hmm. what news I can on, can and cannot consume. Mm-hmm. And now what? It's going to be run from the Department of Homeland Security, which is a fascist name that I've always objected mm-hmm, to anyway. Mm-hmm. Homeland well, Security. Well, here, can I tell you can I tell you another thing about it? Yeah, and I will say, look, I want if if restaurants have to print nutrition information right. on, on their menus, then I would like that to be accurate. You yes. know what I mean? I don't want to walk into a Wendy's and have sure. say, here's a milkshake. It's five calories. Whatever. Who's, uh-huh. who's going to stop us? There was right? a Seinfeld <laughs> episode about that. There are some, you know, there, there are some like reasonable uh, regulations that you could Definitely. impose. But yeah, this idea that, you know, the, the U.S. government can be trusted to tell you the truth under all circumstances and should be in the position of defining what that is. That is absolute nonsense. But to the to the security issue. I have a clip from Mayorkas himself that I'm going to play a little bit later, but I want to talk to his response uh, about his response to Rand Paul here. He keeps trying to turn the conversation away from Russia and back to the border. Yeah. And continues to stress that Homeland Security is only going to get involved in responding to disinformation when it involves a threat to the security of our country. But the example he keeps using is this example of I do not know if this is true of cartels. Uh, he says, we're looking at bad actors who are telling people, I guess, in Central America that Title 42 only applies to certain populations. And he's giving this as an example of a security threat to our nation that might be something uh, that this board would respond to. I mean, the implication is that someone who might be misled by that information, right, who is I am going to guess someone who is probably not very Internet literate, who is maybe poor, who is maybe desperate. So maybe you have some migrant from Guatemala or El Salvador who decides to chance it based on some information that or hope that Title 42 won't bar them from seeking asylum. That's a threat to our security. And you know, it comes back to making immigration a security threat. Sure. It is not. No. It's not. I just think that's a terrible way. Why do you need a standalone, newly appointed board to handle this? Well, this is a point that was made by the next person we have a a clip of, and she doesn't say it in this clip we have, but Shelley Capito, Republican of West Virginia, saying, we have FEMA, we have this organization, we have this organization. Why do you need this new board? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just think it's gross that, you know, let's turn away from Russia. Let's turn away from anything happening in Europe. The real security threat is that a cartel might convince a migrant that maybe they can get asylum in the U.S. and they won't be booted out uh, as a result of Title 42. Mm-hmm. 
That's gross, right? That's just treating migrants as all migrants as automatically security threats. I think yes. that is frankly despicable. I agree um, with you. Here is, I have another clip. Here's uh, Republican Shelley Capito, as I said, of West Virginia, uh, raising concerns about the board itself and its rollout, which is kind of funny. Let's hear her. First of all, the name in and of itself has, I think, implications to all of us. I heard all about this all over the weekend of concern of a sort of an Orwellian, you know, policing of speech. You yourself have even admitted, and you just repeated it here today, that the rollout of this has been vastly, you say, misunderstood. So I think, quite honestly, uh, for the good of, uh, of the rest of the department, that now is a good time to abandon this ludicrous and much maligned idea. I think, I wonder, you know, when you say that we have operational control of the border, is that definitionally disinformation? Because from a lot of our perspectives, we don't believe that is true. So it it seems such a subjective um, and undefined what disinformation is. Uh, I would challenge you to uh, punt this. I would challenge you to punt this. But here's again the problem. Yeah, dis, it, it is subjective, right? This idea of what is disinformation and what mm-hmm. is not disinformation, certainly the way that we are discussing it now, the discourse about it now is highly subjective, highly political. Mm-hmm. Why are we only hearing pushback from people who then want to use the example of our supposedly lawless open border? You know what I mean? Where is the resistance from the left? Right. Exactly. And I did like and again, you know, these are people like uh, worrying. You know, I'm sure she's worried about cancel culture. Right. She's one of you know, probably inflaming fears that if you don't accept, uh, you know, the late in life gender transition that will be forced on you by the next Democratic administration, you will be canceled. (laughs) Right. Why? Where are the other voices of resistance here? Um, And again, she she chides him. You you don't hear this, but she she chides him uh, for starting this off as a board and then continually uh, referring to it as a working group. Again, you rolled out this board. You're trying to tell us this is about the border. Why is its head an expert on Russia and Belarus? Exactly. It is so dishonest. Totally, totally agree. I I do want to give I want to give before we go, we'll give Mayorkas a chance to make his case for the board here, which honestly sounds good. If you pulled it entirely out of the real world context in which it was unrolled. So here is Mayorkas uh, defending himself. And so I asked the question and we asked the question within the department, what efforts do we have underway? What policies and procedures, what standards of conduct do we have in place to ensure that that vitally important homeland security work is done in a way that ensures that it does not infringe on fundamental rights. And the answer was inadequate. And so we put together a working group to ensure that the guardrails are in place, that we have clear definitions, that we have good policies and practices in place to protect the very rights that also are our responsibility not to infringe upon. Well, okay. The guardrails, again. Yeah, yeah. The guardrails. That would all be great, though. That would be great if the Department of Homeland Security had gone, hey, guys, wait a minute. We really want to make sure we don't overstep here. And we want to make sure that we are doing our job of, you know, while uh, guarding security, we are also guarding American civil liberties. The problem is that this is coming out of an administration that has overseen, directed, or at the very least stood by and observed a growing censorship campaign. And if you're going to launch this board without walking any of that back, 
I'm sorry. You know, it's hard to take this seriously. It really is. It's a little lunch buddies group who meet to talk about protecting civil liberties. It's I mean, come on. You know, at at least that wouldn't be dangerous. I'm worried about this civil liberties group infringing on our civil liberties. Yeah. That's the danger here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, may I change the subject? Please. Madison Cawthorn is at it again. Oh, our boy. <laughs> Do is what dignified activity is he engaged in this week? Well, maybe it would be more apt to say that that Republicans who are trying to destroy Madison Cawthorn are at it again. Mm-hmm. Um, the Washington Examiner, which is a conservative D.C. online newspaper, reported today that the website FireMadison.com, which I had never heard of until this morning, uh, has a video showing Cawthorn nude and in bed with a male college friend of his, dry humping his friend and moaning. God, I'm just so sad that I had to hear that. (laughs) It was bad enough reading it. Hearing it come out of your mouth is really upsetting me, In order to protect you and our listeners uh, from having to watch it yourselves, I watched it for you. Yeah. Right? And listen. It's just dumb kids being dumb kids. Yeah. Yeah. He was clearly joking. Yeah. Right. It's clearly it's a bunch of guys in a hotel room. He's clearly joking. Yeah. But with that said, you know, I, I joke with my friends, too, but I don't do it naked in bed with them. Yeah. So it's it's weird. Uh, the Republicans are not defending Cawthorn in a lawsuit seeking to remove him from the ballot because of his support for the January 6th uh, riot. Mm-hmm. This is under the. The insurrection clause in the uh, Constitution. They're not defending him <laughs> over this video. No. They're not defending him over allegations earlier this week that he's involved in an insider trading scandal. They're still furious with him that he said he had been invited to coke fueled orgies with the old men of the uh, Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is this Madison Cawthorn is in. Big trouble politically. Uh, He can't rely on the Republican Party to help him. He's sliding in the polls in North Carolina. And I guarantee you that this story will continue to develop. I'm having so much fun know, with this story. We almost might. We would almost miss him if he wasn't, you know, in yeah. a position to uh, do, do real damage. You know, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and probably Matt Gates are crazier than Madison Cawthorn is. But Madison Cawthorn's more fun to watch. Oh, he sure is. Especially but- if these videos keep coming out. I mean, <laughs> uh, like, what a train wreck. Another thing, too, is Adam Schiff. Oh, um, our favorite. Our favorite. Our favorite guy. Uh, known to some Republicans as Pencil Neck Adam Schiff, uh, the congressman from Los Angeles, specifically from Hollywood, who serves as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said yesterday that he does not understand the Republican obsession with the Supreme Court leak of the draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, Schiff said, quote, I don't care how the draft leaked. That's a sideshow, unquote. But that is not what Adam Schiff said after other leaks, especially leaks related to Julian Assange. Schiff has been an outspoken proponent of using the Antiquated Espionage Act to crack down on leaks, to 
punish and to try Julian Assange. Uh, Schiff was up to his neck in the case against uh, Chelsea Manning. Apparently, though, he doesn't care so much when those leaks support his own political position. And I want to add one other thing to this. It's this is a sideshow, what I'm going to say. But uh, the Hill newspaper this morning reported on an anchorman at Newsmax, the far right wing, uh, quote unquote, news network. Mm -hmm. Um, He said that he knows who leaked this uh, this decision. And it was Ketanji Brown Jackson. Why her? Because she is a member of the radical left and she hates America. Hmm, Okay. Now, he didn't address the facts that Ketanji Brown Jackson is not yet on the Supreme Court. Oh. Yeah. She doesn't yet have access to the Supreme Court. Oh. She doesn't have an office or a staff. Wow. And she doesn't play any role whatsoever in this case. It's like moths are just chewing through this this theory. What are you going to hmm. do? Weird. What are you going to do? I wonder how he came up with her name. Interesting. I wonder. Um, also interesting news. And I, do, I have to say, I do not know when we're going to get the results of this, but it, it could be that Sinn Féin... The Irish Nationalist Party that wants to unite Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, might for the first time become the biggest group in the Northern Ireland Assembly, which would mean it gets the the first minister post in the government in in Belfast. And Sinn Féin, of course, was associated with the IRA. It is also a democratic socialist party and one that apparently has been running a campaign not focusing on eventual reunification or the political status of Northern Ireland, but on the cost of health care and the cost of living. This is according to a Politico story today. I'm not going to pretend that I've been watching the campaign unfold. Um, <laughs> that but, sounds perfectly reasonable but to this me. This is what reports are saying. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, so it, it, it has Sinn Féin has been apparently gaining in popularity both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And even though it hasn't been focusing on that political outcome in this campaign, which is a much more, you know, bread and butter campaign, Mm -hmm. it is still a promoter of reunification. And uh, its director of elections said, look, you know, a victory today would mean that a reunification referendum is coming at some point. Mm -hmm. He he didn't give a timeline for it, but just that this momentum is building. It's something for the Republic of Ireland to to grapple with because they would be absorbing a bunch more people. Uh, You know, what is that going to do economically to the island? What is that going to do to their political priorities, whatever? But it is a very, very interesting uh, possibility. Wow. Yep. Okay. good. You know, I have I have friends in the Republic of Ireland and I have a good friend in Northern Ireland. And, you know, all the years that I've known them, they've supported unification or reunification uh everybody's tired of what they call the troubles uh even though the the troubles have officially ended mm-hmm. there's still this political tension on well, the there's island still a partition yeah, and i mean and it's brexit, still brexit raised a bunch of issues that's like, right you know it's, it's Big, it remains there issues. yeah exactly i mean it remains a sort of bizarre situation the other uh issue here is if they win will who will work with them, right? Yes. Because uh, if they, the other parties will have to agree to work with them for them to get anything done. So we'll see. Yes. We'll see what that outcome is, but uh, it could be pretty interesting. But, you know, to me, it's a little bit like how Hezbollah in Lebanon has become a legitimate political party. Yeah. It has legitimate roles to play in government. Yeah. 
and people who, you know, had sworn once upon a time that they would never have anything to do with Hezbollah find themselves working with Hezbollah on a daily basis to run the government. And I can't help but to think that enough time has passed that people will work with Sinn Féin because Mm -hmm. it's all about running the government. Right. You got to make the the trains run on time and make sure people have electricity and clean water. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a very good thing. Yeah. And talking about the cost of living, talking about Mm -hmm. paychecks, talking about access to health care, talking about, you know, what what should the future of the NHS be? You know, I think it's notable that this is not the rise of a right wing party, you know, far from it. So, yeah, that's right. There's a lot here that people in Ireland can agree on, both Ireland and Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. a lot they can agree on. This is good news. Well, we've got a great guest today. We have Arnold August, who's going to join us from uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. We have Dr. Robert Hockett. Uh, Dr. Yolandra Hancock is going to talk to us about international health issues Mm -hmm. and the always excellent Chris Garafa. Um, What do you want to do? Should we take a little break? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take that little break and come right back. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The UK government banned all service exports to Russia and imposed new sanctions on 63 individuals and organizations. These new sanctions cut off Russian access to things like management consulting, accounting services, PR services, and even legal representation. Additional sanctions were imposed on Sputnik and RT in the UK, even though neither outlet operates there. Sputnik and RT UK social media pages and websites will now be seized by the British government. Even Irish journalist Brian McDonald was sanctioned. A former RT employee, McDonald is now banned from the UK and his assets there have been frozen. A pro-Russian Ukrainian blogger, meanwhile, was arrested in Spain and will be extradited to Ukraine to face charges of high treason. This poor guy has been living legally in Spain since 2016, and he's just a blogger. The New York Times reported today that senior American officials confirm that they have provided a continual flow of intelligence to Ukraine that has allowed the Ukrainian military to kill approximately 12 Russian generals a number that analysts call astonishing. The U.S. is intercepting Russian communications and passing the information to the Ukrainians for targeting purposes. The Kremlin, meanwhile, is carrying out strikes on Ukraine's train system, according to the Washington Post. Those trains are critical to Ukraine's ability to resupply its troops in the Donbass, and India said that it will continue to purchase Russian oil, not because it supports Moscow, but because the price is irresistible. We're joined by Arnold August from Montreal. He's a journalist and the author of three books on Cuba, Latin America, and U.S. foreign policy. His articles appear in English, Spanish, and French in North America, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East. And he's a contributing editor for the Canada Files and a member of the International Manifesto Group. Welcome back, Arnold. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. 
We're happy to have you, and I have a lot of questions for you. So let's begin with this UK uh, media today, this reporting uh, describing Boris Johnson as the leader of the world's efforts to sanction and isolate Russia. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea, Uh, nor do I care. Uh, But the UK implemented its sixth round of sanctions against Russia, including these very tough sanctions on professional services. I wanted to ask you, how serious are these measures? Now, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers, they can't do Russian accounting work from London. So what? I think it's I think it's very important. It's not insignificant. Of course, uh-huh. uh, the U, the UK as the uh, main one of the main allies of the United States wants to make sure that the uh, United States knows that the UK is on their side on this very controversial issue of Ukraine. Now, I think it's very serious because it reminds me it, it works as a threat that goes beyond the borders of the UK and, and even Europe. It reminds me of a tactic that is used by the United States against Cuba when they put Cuba on the list of countries sponsoring terrorism. Mm-hmm. So what happened? And mm-hmm. Imme- immediately after that, you have companies, insurance companies, taking it as, well, we cannot do business with Cuba because we there's a possibility that we, be, we will be sanctioned by the United States if we deal with Cuba. So they hold back uh, from dealings with Cuba uh, as a a result of this threat. So I think this is very important. I think it goes well beyond the borders of the UK. And I noticed in that list that you provided us, uh, at least two of those companies exist in Canada. I'm sure they also exist in the United States. For example, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers truly exists in the United States as well. So, Oh, yeah. It's it's the biggest uh, it's the biggest accounting firm in the United States. Yeah, of course. So, mm-hmm. so the the tentacles of the UK sanctions goes well beyond the UK. It, it, it affects other countries of the world mm-hmm. and the world. But of course, in this case, the United States would be very happy that this company is also sanctioned, even if it is in the United States and by a foreign country such as. Britain. So I guess in a case like this, you know, there, there, there's um, any uh, pretense of having principles internationally and all that. It just goes it just goes by the way. I mean, everything goes when it comes to trying to sanction Russia. And yes, it is very serious. Uh, Arnold, the latest British sanctions on Sputnik and RT seem yeah. odd. It, they seem capricious, to tell you the truth. Uh, those two yeah. companies don't even exist anymore as broadcasters in the UK. Now the social media pages and the websites will be taken down, seized, to use the word of the uh, British government. The tech and digital economy minister, and I didn't even know there was such a minister in the UK until today, but this this tech and, e- and digital economy minister said, quote, for too long, RT and Sputnik have churned out dangerous nonsense dressed up as serious news, unquote. To me, that sounds like he's describing the UK media, right? I mean, this is an ongoing complaint about the UK media is that it's all dangerous nonsense. Whatever happened to freedom of speech in the UK? How, How can the UK seize RT and Sputnik's social media pages and and websites? Yes, whatever happened to the freedom of speech? In the UK, what came to mind instinctively was that uh, the same UK is holding Julian Assange That's right. in a prison 
on behalf of the United States, torturing him to death for telling the truth mm-hmm. about U.S. crimes in various parts of the world. So, you know, we should not be that surprised, but we also have to be very vigilant. Every step that they are taking is a new step. I mean, to, to provide some perspective, my own take on, on this whole thing that is happening with regards to Sputnik and other such measures is that, in my view, we are witnessing the most serious attempt to impose consent, or in Chomsky's word, manufacturing consent mm-hmm. on the issue of Russia. That Russia, you know, turning truth on its head, revising history, saying Russia is fascist and all that. We, I've never seen this, it hasn't, we haven't seen this in decades. It's airtight. It's impossible for anyone in their right mind, so to speak, whether it's the United States, Britain, or Canada, to say anything that challenges even one iota the NATO narrative against Russia. It's, it, it is, it's frightening. I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. How about you? I mean, it's really groundbreaking in a negative way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm very disturbed by the report um, of sanctions against this Irish journalist, Brian McDonald. Um, yes. He's sanctioned only because he once worked for RT and his assets yes. have been frozen. If, if he has any assets in the UK, I wouldn't be surprised. I if think he, did. He, he joked that he didn't really. He gave a little interview where he was like, if you think Good. I've got money to freeze overseas, Good. you Poor know, guy. jokes on you. And, and he's subjected to a, a travel ban. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm on a travel ban, uh, for the UK, right? Because I'm a dangerous criminal and, um, and that hasn't stopped me from going to the UK five times in the last six years. I go there all the time, speeches and events and seminars and stuff like that. But, um, but Brian McDonald's never been convicted of any crime. He's never even been accused of a crime. Mm -hmm. And yet he's being treated as a convicted felon. What do you make of that? No, I, I think that's really important. I'm glad that you raise it because even though the you know all the different uh, features or um, events that you just described they're similar, but this we can get to a new level. He has not been accused of anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you, you talk about you know I have to you talk about you, your own experience being banned uh, from going to other countries. I also have the same experience. Since mm-hmm. uh, about three three years ago, uh, after having posted on my Facebook page uh, a, a promotion of a demonstration in Washington D.C. in support of the Maduro government, mm-hmm. on my way to the airport from Montreal to Washington D.C. to bring a message from the trade unions in Canada in support of the demonstration, Homeland Security which of course exists in the Canadian airport, they stopped me from going into the United States. Oh my God. They gave no real reason. And since then, I've tried again. I, I am, in fact, banned from going to the United States. So these things have happened quite a bit. We don't hear enough about it. But but in any case, the most important, this is really a, a, a case that it brings the whole thing to a new level. He hasn't been accused of anything. And it's part of this worldwide attempt to... Uh, maintain a watertight narrative yes. with regards to the conflict in, in Russia. You know, I've got a friend who is um, a, a Greek journalist, left of center yes. journalist, but not crazy left yes. of center. 
um, sort of mainstream yeah. socialist. And um, he's gotten himself elected to the European Parliament. He's he's doing his third term right now in the European Parliament. And um, in fact, he he was the guy who ran the Greek version of 60 Minutes every Sunday at seven o'clock. And um, he emailed me res- uh, recently to say that he had gotten a letter from the State Department, uh, which which came after an email from the State Department saying that his visa to visit the United States has been permanently revoked. Now, this is a serious journalist. He's not a nut. He's not a radical, but he's being permanently banned from the United States. Why? Because he had the audacity to interview Julian Assange. That was it. He didn't take a position on Julian Assange. He didn't try to force Julian Assange down the Justice Department's throat. He interviewed him for a TV news program. And so he's banned from the United States. But that's that's the America that we find ourselves in now. I want to ask you also, it's a similar it's a similar issue, Arnold, um, is this poor guy, this blogger in Spain. Here's a guy who's a Ukrainian national, but he has lived legally in Spain since 2016. By all accounts, he's just lived quietly in this little village in uh, in the south of the country. Uh, And the Ukrainians have issued an arrest warrant, an international arrest warrant for him because of what he blogs that he's pro-Russian in his blogs. And now the Spanish have arrested him. They're extraditing him to Ukraine to face charges of high treason. Treason charges carry the possibility of life without parole. They also carry the possibility of a death sentence because it's wartime. Is freedom of speech dead, Arnold? Can just anybody be arrested and convicted of a serious crime just for expressing an opinion? Unfortunately, I have to agree with you. You know, I'm of the opinion I'm not the only one. Other uh, commentators, uh, you know, uh, from the left or even progressive commentator, have seen that we are going through an unprecedented period of attacks against the freedom of speech right now, especially since February 24th, 2022, when the I call it I I, I am proud to call it the special Russian military operation. In Ukraine, it's unprecedented. So, so we're really in, you know, uh, waters that you know, in, in areas that we don't are not completely familiar with. And it's, it's gone so far. Like all of the this, different examples that you've raised in the last few minutes are, to a large extent, unprecedented. And I don't think it's going to stop. It's going to increase. I mean, what what they're trying to do in terms of the ideas, they are trying to, for example, completely revise World War II history saying that uh, Russia, uh, Soviet Union at the time, even though it was instrumental in defeating the Nazis, were as bad as the Nazis. So, and right. then they keep on churning this out. For what purpose? They say, okay, we are justified in attacking Russia because Russia is as bad as the Nazis. You can't get any more revisionist than that in terms of history. And in my view, this whole you know, promoting these ideas of revising history is extremely dangerous because if the notion that they are presenting now is uh, embedded in the minds of the people, that the people in the United States, UK, Canada, etc., we are justified in attacking Russia, mm-hmm. justified in carrying out somehow a regime change 
in Russia against Putin, it's justified because we are fighting the fascists just as the world fought the fascists in the Second World yeah. War. This is a very dangerous notion in my view. I agree. And there's very little historical perspective in foreign policy making right now. I want to ask you about this New York Times article saying that the U.S. is helping Ukraine to kill Russian generals. I think this is an explosive ac- accusation, and it, it may even be unprecedented. You know, it's one thing to, to arm the Afghan Mujahideen. It's an entirely different thing to specifically target generals on the battlefield. As soon as this thing was leaked, there was pushback from the White House. Uh, But there's no doubt that the information is true because the information came from the White House. Right. When they when they quote senior U.S. officials involved in the program, that's the White House. So does this raise the ante uh, between the U.S. and Russia? There has to be some sort of fallout uh, from this from this policy. What do you think that fallout will be or what do you think that fallout should be? You're right. It does raise the ante. but. In all frankness, the what you just uh, read to me, this that statement with regards to Russia actually came out previously on March seventeenth, uh, uh-huh. two thousand twenty-two. No less than the former Secretary of Defense, former CIA, CIA director mm-hmm. Leon, Leon Panetta said, and I'm quoting March seventeenth. He says. Diplomacy is going nowhere unless we have leverage. Unless the Ukrainians have leverage. And the way you get leverage is by, frankly, going in and killing Russians. End of quote. Now, let me just remember, oh, that must be in, in right-wing Fox News. Eh? Oh, no, no, I'm wrong. It was under liberal CNN. Oh, my God. You know, that's why we, we have this, you know, this very dangerous situation that you're presenting. I agree with you. Where you have, you know, the liberal CNN you know, presenting a former head of the CIA saying, open, we have to kill more Russia. Now, when he said that, there wasn't any real uh, pullback from the from 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 Washington, D.C., from the Biden government. So that, you know, it kept on going. Uh, that is really the, like when Biden um, inadvertently said during one of his talks uh, that, you know, we are in favor of regime change mm-hmm. in Russia. But Favoring regime change in Russia concrete, concretely means some kind of a, a coup, a violent coup to try to overthrow the uh, President Putin's position his, his, in, uh, in Russia and replace it with someone else who is pro-U.S. It, it's as simple as that. They cannot take an anti-U.S. Uh, uh, Russia uh, and just leave mm-hmm. it how it is. Mm-hmm. They want to do anything to overthrow it, and that includes killing Russians. Arnold, uh, tell us a little bit about this Russian decision to attack Ukraine's train infrastructure. Frankly, if this were a U.S. decision, the military would have attacked the train infrastructure on the very first day of the war. Why Why'd the Russians wait so long? Well, uh, here's my view. I'm, I'm not a military expert such as uh, Ron Ritter and others who have appeared in many alternative media in the United States. Uh, but I will say this based on my investigation that th- the Russians have said that their special military operation uh, is designed to affect as least uh, the least amount of, of civilian casualties possible. Right. I think that is a very plausible uh, uh, explanation of why 
They waited so long to do it because uh, they wanted to limit, and they still want to limit, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, civilian casualties. Otherwise, they would have done it before. I mean, it, just generally speaking, mm-hmm. I mean, with the military power that Russia has, you know, they they could have, uh, you know, you know, taken out the Zelensky government right right from day one. Right. You know, parachute in there, take him up, take out him and all his Nazi crew there, and take him away. But they, I, I think, they sincerely want to limit civilian casualties. Of course. Anyone listening to what we're saying now and is just completely uh, fascinated and imbued by the CNN uh, narrative that the Russians are killing indiscriminately uh, Ukrainians and all that won't believe it. But that, that is the actual fact. That is why the, the, to go against the reality of the fact that, United, that Russia is trying to limit civilians as much as possible, that is why they have all of these red these uh, false flags coming up all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, they literally fabricated uh, notions that the Russians uh, uh, annihilated people, Ukrainians and all that, which, you know, basically uh, a, a false flag put on by the U- by the United States and Ukraine to carry on their propaganda war against Russia to go along with their military war against Russia. Yep. Okay, let me turn um, to India for a, for a moment. There have been several uh, news articles about U.S. pressure on India over the last three, four, five weeks uh, to cut economic ties with Russia. India has long had very good economic relations, diplomatic relations even, with Russia, and before that with the Soviet Union. And economic ties, them, ties between them are, are strong now. Uh, the Indians said that they will continue to buy Russian oil because the price is so low. Do you see that changing? Do you see the United States in any way convincing the Indians to uh, to restrict relations with Russia? No, I don't think that. Uh, I think it's a very serious uh, contradiction there. And that, in fact, it goes back a few weeks earlier when uh, uh, when the um, when the uh, U.S. backed resolution in the United Nations to condemn what they call the Russian invasion, there are many countries in the South, for example, India, did not, that did not vote in favor of that resolution uh, to, to uh, condemn Russia and also did not uh, vote in favor of uh, imposing sanctions against Russia. Now, soon after that, uh, the, uh, you know, India was uh, chastised by the United States. I mean, the United States, they, they're, they're not ashamed of anything. You know, if a country goes against no. what they're saying, they <laughs> go, yeah, yeah, right there, hey, what are you doing? And so, but the response of India, that government is a right-wing government, okay? But India said, look, you're talking to uh, uh, India, a, people of mi- uh, a country of millions of poor people. Why should we buy gas or, or, or other gas or oil or whatever from other countries than Russia when we could have it cheaper from Russia. So that was the answer. And we, we remember, you know, a similar thing uh, took place uh, with Pakistan when, when, when the United States, when Pakistan refused to uh, support the U.S. resolution condemning Russia. Yeah. Uh, they were immediately, uh, you know, uh, corralled by uh, the Pakistan uh, president was immediately approached by the United States. And he made a very open public statement. He said, look, we are not your lackeys. We are not your slaves. We have our own position and we're sticking to it. And guess what happened? Coup d'etat against them. 
So it's it, it, you know, it's and you know, but what is interesting about that? I mentioned a coup d'état, but the millions of people that went out to the street to support the the ousted president was really outstanding. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, it was massive. Twitter. You have millions of people. It was massive. So so this you know what we're talking about. We're talking about, in my view, since February twenty fourth, two thousand twenty two, a type titanic um, major shift international shift in terms of uh, you know the end uh, the inevitable end of u.s hegemony over the world going side by side with the invariable increase in strength of the multipolar world like you mentioned india now india is part of of a very important economic association that is not that well known. It's called the BRICS, standing for B Brazil, uh, R for Russia, I for India, C for China, and S for South Africa, BRICS. These five major countries, mainly in the South, uh, have the, have a, a, an important uh, association on its own, and they include countries such as Brazil with the right-wing government and India also right-wing government. And just yesterday, I saw some reports that this BRICS association is looking to expand its relationship with other countries in the world. And in the backdrop of all this, you have China, which is developing its relations with the Belt and Road Initiative in West Asia, and even as far as Latin America. So I think it's important for, for listeners to take into account or uh, uh, to reflect upon, you know, my view in any case, that since February 24th, the world has changed. It's a major confrontation between the growing, growing multipolar world against a very desperate attempt of the United States and its most faithful allies, such as the United States, uh, such as Britain and Canada, to maintain the hegemony. It's a, we are living in historical times, in my view. Arnold, last question. There's a very Canadian story that I wanted to ask you about. A 31-year-old Toronto woman who is confined to a wheelchair and who suffers from a chronic illness called multiple chemical sensitivities syndrome. She's in the news um, smells from things like cigarette smoke, air fresheners, laundry detergent, cause her to suffer from things like blinding headaches, rashes, difficulty breathing. She has to constantly use an EpiPen. She does not qualify for enough state assistance to be able to get a healthy apartment, an apartment where she would be protected from these smells that trigger this terrible illness that she has. And so she's decided to turn to assisted suicide. And she's currently going through the application process that the government has to um, to end her life. How is something like this even possible in Canada? Well, first of all, I like the way you phrase it because it sort of um, uh, underscores uh, some uh, preconceived views that exist outside of Canada with regards to Canada, for example. It's not as bad as the United States. It seems like mostly vehicle by people like uh, Michael Moore and, and others who uh, praise the uh, health system in Canada, so does Bernie Sanders, completely uh, exaggerated. So, you know, people are prone to say this is happening even in Canada. I would say this is happening especially in Canada. I mean, when, when the when the uh, pandemic broke out a couple of years ago, uh, right in my home area of Quebec, Montreal, where I, where I live, there, just to give you what, provide you one example, there was a, 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 a special um, home care, a special uh, hospital 
for elderly people. Now, this hospital for elderly people were owned by two capitalists, who, by the way, were also involved in drugs and things like that. Now, the situation degenerates so much that dozens of people actually died in their bed, in their feces, over a period of several days because the, the, the personnel was not there to take care of them. So this act, this is part of the Canadian so-called the Canadian uh, you know uh, health system and all that. And as we talk, you know, it is so flagrant. You know, while the Trudeau government, you know, this uh, picture boy, liberal picture boy, Trudeau government, good-looking guy and all that, while he's, he's carrying on all his narrative, U.S. Uh, pro-U.S. narrative against Russia and against all their all of the countries of the world, this this Canadian government still has not responded to the demands of the native nations in Canada to have drinking water available in their communities. We're, ta- we're talking about over five years. So, you know, it, it's par for the course. It's not even in Canada. I would say especially in Canada. We are going to leave it there. That was our friend Arnold August, who joined us from Montreal. He's a journalist and the author of three books on Cuba, Latin America, and U.S. foreign policy. His articles appear in English, Spanish, and French in North America, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East, and he's a contributing editor to the Canada Files and a member of the International Manifesto Group. We are running a little bit short on time, so we're not going to take a break. What I'd like to do is to go to our very next guest. We are happy to welcome back to Political Misfits Professor Robert Hockett who is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University in New York and the Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital and also a fellow at the Century Foundation. Welcome back. Hey, so glad to be with you again. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for for being with us. And I apologize for the the delay. Um, We've been doing, among other things, watching the stock market today. Uh, The Dow Mm -hmm. Jones Industrial Averages Averages had their biggest one-day gain uh, in, what, two years yesterday. The Dow is down 1,000 points today. Amazon, for example, is off 30% today. It's, it's catastrophic if your name is Jeff Bezos, I guess. Um, you know, it, it seems like Wall Street liked the fact that Jerome Powell announced a, a half a percentage point interest rate hike yesterday. And um, they liked that it showed the Fed's commitment to taming inflation, but it's going to make it increasingly difficult for Americans, especially young Americans, uh, to take out a mortgage. And in the meantime, consumer spending is up. Personal wealth is up. Uh, it seems like that would probably egg on inflation. Um, what do you make of all that? What What are your thoughts about this interest rate hike yesterday? And uh, you know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Would you rather see inflation, or would you rather see a recession? I think there are a number of things here. First of all, I don't think we have to see either. I don't uh-huh. think we have to see either inflation or a recession. And in fact, I think that the current inflationary uh, troubles are are indeed uh, transitory. I know that it's uh, some of the right wingers um, have been having a bit of a field day attacking those who call it uh, a transitory uh, matter, um, but that doesn't bother me at all. That's sort of what one expects. It is transitory, and I think this is the case for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the original impetus for the inflations were, of course, the tremendous sort of supply troubles that we've had. 
ever since not just 2020, when we had to sort of shut down shop floors and the like, thereby sort of shutting down production, but also owing, of course, to the so-called supply chain difficulties that you've heard about, which basically is shorthand for shipping troubles. Um, We outsourced most of our production, of course, over the Clinton and Bush years to China and a few other uh, sort of low labor costs, quote unquote, uh, producers. And uh, it's, of course, a lot more difficult to sort of import the stuff that we have been importing from those jurisdictions owing to COVID problems, just in the same way that what little production we've retained here had to shut down for a while. So that's the sort of the ultimate root cause. But then on top of that, there's something even more, I think, proximately important. And that is that the price gouging has just been off the charts. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following this at all, but quite a few people have been sitting in on shareholder profit profit calls, or just basically shareholder calls with CEOs of corporate America. Uh, And it turns out that this is just massively the case, like literally hundreds of shareholder calls that are handled by the CEOs involve the CEOs and the CFOs of the companies gloating and chortling about how all of the hype about inflation is giving them excellent cover for jacking up prices. And now the quantitative studies are coming out, and it turns out that profit margins, now remember, that's revenue net of costs, including labor costs, profit margins are up across the board 55%. Now, the last I checked, the inflation rate that people are hand-wringing about is 8%. So think about that. Mm -hmm. 8% inflation, 55% profit margin rise. What we have going on here, in other words, then, is we do have legitimate supply constraints, and then we've got corporate CEO types using those supply constraints as pretexts for raising prices in order to raise profits, all the while beginning to talk about so-called wage push inflation of the kind that is sometimes said to have happened during the 1970s. This is, I think, a massive scandal. Now, there are two reasons, I think, that the inflation is accordingly going to be short-lived. The first is that the exposure is now getting pretty intense. People are exposing the price gouging. And there are bills now before Congress, including one recently introduced by Senator Warren, to start penalizing companies for price gouging. Uh So basically, the spotlight is showing on that. So that source of inflation is probably going to diminish. Secondly, the Biden administration has gotten quite serious about reshoring production here to the U.S. and massively investing in actual productive industries for a change, rather than speculative industries like those on Wall Street. And we're going to start seeing the effects of that, I think, fairly quickly as well. So basically, domestic supplies are going to start rising because domestic production is going to start rising. Meanwhile, the price gouging is probably going to become a little bit more difficult now that there's a spotlight on it. And in consequence, I think people understand that inflation is indeed going to prove to be transitory. So what the Fed has done is it spoke out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, it gave us the, the largest rate hike since twenty uh, since the year 2000. That shows that it's watching or paying attention. At the same time, the Fed made remarks. Basically, Chair Powell mumbled to the effect that he doesn't think this is going to go on forever, and the Fed is ready basically to cut rates again, or at least to stop raising them as soon as it becomes clear that price rises have slowed down. So I actually think that, in effect, Mm -hmm. the market reaction to what the Fed is doing is, in effect, kind of cooking all of that in. Oh, how interesting. So do you think that that 
these swings that we're seeing in the market are temporary, that that price rises or price uh, cuts have already been sort of factored into the market, and we're just mm-hmm. waiting to see what the next round of numbers are? I do think that. I do think that. And so I think that the reason that the markets were rising at first was they sort of said, okay, well, look, uh, Powell has sort of confirmed um, that he's on the case and that, you know, they're not ignoring inflation, that they're not blithe about it. But at the same time, um, again, in that remark that I mentioned a moment ago, Powell also sort of signaled that they're not going to be restrictive any longer than they have to. And that's a kind of Goldilocks scenario. That's sort of perfect, in a sense, for, for corporate America. As for why prices might appear to be kind of, um, you know, why, I'm sorry, why, the, why the, uh, the indices are dropping again today, that could be anything. It might be that they're worried about the growing exposure of their price gouging because it's been, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it again this morning because more ex- Exposés have just come out, um, and so it might be partly that they realize that their, you know, the kind of field day that they've been having uh, with price gouging might be over. The party's going to have to come to an end. Could be that, but it also could be any number of other things. As as you guys know, you really can't put, you know, no pun intended here, but you can't really put much stock in uh, daily price movements on the markets. Yeah. Um, you know, daily prices aren't True. particularly rationally connected to anything serious or fundamental. You're absolutely right. Um, I want to tell you also that in in 55 seconds, we have to take a hard break at the top mm-hmm. of the hour. So I'm going to ask you a question. We'll take that break and then uh, we'll come back for your answer. And the question is this. The Senate voted yesterday on a series of motions related to the China competition bill. The motions were non-binding, but they gave a sense of where the Senate was on the overall measure. A vote sponsored by Ted Cruz, which passed 86 to 12, would largely scuttle the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Other motions called for something that you just brought up a a minute ago, um, including $52 billion to subsidize semiconductor research and actual manufacturing of semiconductors here in the United States, and $8 billion for a United Nations climate fund. Overall, the spending bill would be $300 billion if, if it makes it that far. The House version of the bill did not garner a single Republican vote. And the Senate bill is going to come up for a final vote in the next um, few days. So we're going to take that break. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. And we're going to come back with Professor Robert Hockett's answer. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Hockett. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University in New York and the senior counsel at Westwood Capital and a fellow at the Century Foundation. We were just talking about this China competition bill, uh, Professor. The, the Wall Street Journal in 2021 called it perhaps the most significant piece of legislation in decades, but then it got bogged down in the legislative process. Can you give us your thoughts on this bill, on what it wants to spend money on and how you think it's going to turn out? 
Yeah, I've got maybe a couple of particulars and a couple of generals to mention in this connection, you guys. So on the particulars, uh, the first is one that hasn't been getting as much attention, but I wish that it would. Um, if your listeners would uh, Google at some point um, the phrase, Pat Toomey poison pill or Senator Toomey poison pill or what have you. Um, it's worth having a look at that. Basically, in parts of the bill are sort of masquerading as kind of pro-America production, pro-America buying sorts of provisions um, and kind of, you know, sort of stiffening our competition with China in the kind of global markets. Um, but but Toomey, uh, oddly enough, seems to want to take away the capacity uh, of the U.S. Trade Representative uh, actually to sort of, you know, basically work to enforce various provisions that are meant to help America. American producers who are being faced with sort of mercantilist sorts of protectionist measures by uh, Chinese competitors. So uh, Pat Toomey seems to like to think of himself or bill himself as a kind of pro-working American sort of guy. And he's from Pennsylvania, after all, where you would especially think that that would sell well. Right. Uh, but he seems to be much more a friend to multinationals um, and to um, other you know, non-American firms than he is to uh, American firms or American uh, workers. Um, the second sort of particular worth noting is, is, is one that you uh, noted, which is, of course, that the bill does include lots of um, investment money to sort of encourage mm -hmm. uh, the expansion uh, of production of various products in various industries of tomorrow back here in the U.S., notably, of course, microprocessors. Um, but we, you know, there's a bit more than just that in there. There ought to be even more, in my humble opinion. I think the U.S., once again, to be the world's largest producer and uh, exporter of solar panels, for example, mm -hmm. and of windmills uh, and of uh, batteries and of EVs. I mean, basically all of that stuff was invented here in the U.S., but all of it is produced uh, in cheap labor jurisdictions. And the best thing we could do both for American labor and for the American climate and the global climate is actually to reshore the production of all of that stuff. And this bill does some of that, which is helpful, but it ought to do even more. And I think we will see a lot more of that coming. Indeed, I've got a bill uh, that I drafted for a number of Congress members on both sides of the aisle that will probably be being announced in the next few days oh, or so uh, that devoted specifically to that, to a, a massive mobilization of U.S. production and all of the industries of tomorrow. Um, uh, as far as the general observations go, um, one has to do with what you guys noted about, you know, Ted Cruz adding on various things and other people doing yeah. this. This is, of course, classic log rolling, oh, yes. um, which happens a lot, as you guys know, in Congress. I I do think that um, a movement might be beginning to develop uh, that's a kind of backlash to that. Um, it, and ironically, it might be the Building Back Better bill and its fate um, that is the precipitant here, or that could turn out to be the precipitant here. I think people are beginning to figure out that you can't sell or, or sort of tout or sort of uh, puff up legislation that sprawls over thousands of pages and includes thousands of unrelated topics and then expect the constituents, the voters, the citizenry to understand what you've done and understand, therefore, you know, that it was good or that it was bad. Uh, it would be much more efficient and we get much more actually legislated in addition to much better communication with the citizenry if we started making bills shorter again and letting them be about one subject. People forget about the New Deal, for example, that, you know, there wasn't one great big massive omnibus bill called the New Deal Act or anything like that. It was literally thousands of 
short enactments, most of which were, you know, eight to 10 to maybe 20 pages. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Glass-Steagall Act, which was massively important, I think occupied a total of eight pages. I think we have to move back to that, both for the sake of legislative efficiency and for the sake, again, of democracy, so that the citizenry knows what's actually happening. And so they can then vote, you know, on it to ratify it or otherwise, right? So that's um, another, I think, general point, um, or that's one of the, that's the, the, the main general point, I think, that maybe is, is worth noting here, too, in connection with that particular bill. I want to ask you a, a political question, too. Even if this bill passes the Senate, the Senate version is wildly different now than the House version, and the two versions would have to go to conference committee. Do you think that the four sides, and that's really what we have here is four sides. You have Democrats in the House, Democrats in the Senate, Republicans in the House, Republicans in the Senate, and they all have a position, a separate position. Do you think that they can come to an agreement and get this thing passed? Because the Wall Street Journal says that we absolutely positively have to have this bill. Yeah, I think it's possible, but it would be, in a way, this sort of reinforces the point we were just talking about. Basically, it's a lot easier to get agreement on stuff in general um, if people actually have time to read it and understand mm-hmm. what's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the longer and more sprawling and the more add-ons there are, you know, the, the more difficult it is to expect people or the more kind of implausible it is to expect all the Congress members to be up to date on what's in it and thus to sort of come to some right. sort of agreement. That being said, um, sometimes the the log rolling actually can help facilitate agreement because if everybody feels like they got something in there and everybody has therefore a kind of stake in it, Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, as long as there's nothing too incendiary in it that is for somebody else, they can kind of hold their noses and pass it. So um, I'm fairly optimistic that some rendition of this will make it through conference committee and will end up being, you know, signed by uh, the president once both houses have approved it. I think you're right. Uh, Finally, I have to ask you about NFTs. This is something that Michelle and I talk about all the time. Uh, We have tried to understand this odd phenomenon since (laughs) NFTs were introduced, but they just seem like a scam. I I just don't get it. There's nothing tangible. Do you see NFTs as as a short-lived economic fad or is there actually something to them? Yeah, the uh, Robert, earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal was, uh, had, you know, pronounced NFTs, de- you know, called time of death on NFTs, which I was celebrating. Uh, but there's been some disagreement. So I'm curious what you make of that. No, I love you guys' take on it because there's so many people who seem to be willing to say at least a couple of good things about them, even if they register caveats or whatever. Um, but you guys, I and Warren Buffett are the only three parties <laughs> I'm aware of who say that they are completely valueless, completely worthless, completely ridiculous, and they're going to go the way of the pet rock or the mood ring. I mean, right. we're not going to be talking about that <laughs> um, uh, after you know another <laughs> few months or so, right? There's so much of that in. in and the whole crypto space is full of this rubbish. All of the, this is just so much nonsense. And yet it's just another symptom of this long run disease where we never actually look at, un, you know, fundamental actual value. Where yeah. is real value being produced in this country? Kind of not many places these days, thanks to the Clinton and Bush years, especially. Um, but I think we're going to move back 
toward actually being a value-adding, you know, actual producing society again soon. Um, and ideally, uh, that's going to further empower labor, and we'll see more unionization, and we'll see labor once again becoming the most important, the recognized most important part of this economy, because it's always the most important factor of production when there's real production happening. One reason, of course, that labor has been so weak of late until recently is precisely the fact that we've ceased to be a production economy. We're basically a hype economy or a speculation economy. And the, the NFT fad is just the latest sort of symptom of that. But I really do think we're finally addressing this disease. Trump talked about it a lot, which was a helpful thing. But of course, he was probably constitutionally incapable. I mean, psychologically incapable of actually doing anything effective about any of it. But at least he deserves, I suppose, credit for calling attention to it, um, you know, because people listened to him when they didn't listen to people like us. Uh, 10, 15 years ago when we were saying that stuff. But now they kind of are. I think people are beginning to think about production again and making America make again, you might say. Mm. Um, and as we do that, labor is going to be, I mean, the middle class is going to be buttressed and it's going to grow. Labor is finally going to be paid living wages again. We're actually going to have a much more egalitarian distribution of the proceeds of economic activity, I think, in the coming years, um, as long as we can you know, prevent a... Uh, a, a complete descent into total uh, fascism, which is still a threat. <laughs> but for me, I'm, I'm metabolically optimistic, so I, I think we're gonna we're gonna get through this. Okay, we'll end it there. We were happy to be joined by Professor Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University in New York, and the Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital, and a Fellow at the Century Foundation. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take that short break now and we'll come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about two uh, two topics that I think are somewhat connected. Uh, that is COVID-19 and global hunger. We have news on both. The U.S., of course, has just passed a million COVID deaths, but perhaps more significantly, the WHO has come out and said that the true toll of the pandemic is more like 15 million people, which is more than double the officially reported numbers. And a lot of this comes from, I think they have said that India's COVID death toll was something like more than 10 times more than the government That's reported. Right. So it's a significant increase. Included in this figure are... Um, deaths that are indirectly attributed to COVID. So things like not getting cancer screenings in time, kids not getting childhood vaccinations, not being able to get a hospital bed because they were full of COVID patients, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to talk about, you know, what this new figure should tell us about the pandemic. We are also, of course, going to talk about um, really awful reports on a, on a serious increase in global hunger, coupled with reports about uh, epidemic obesity in Europe and how we should react to that really grotesque juxtaposition. We're joined now by Dr. Yolanda Hancock, a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. Thanks for being here, Dr. Hancock. Thanks for having me. So, you know, talking about this new WHO estimate of, of 15 million, should this change our assessment of how we handled COVID globally? You know, I think even with the current estimates, although 
with that number, it's just absolutely shocking. I think our assessment of how we handle this pandemic globally should be evaluated. As Winston Churchill wrote, uh, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on what we did well globally and what we need to improve upon. And what I would say we've done well globally is viral surveillance, particularly outside of the United States. The United States has done a relatively poor job, comparatively speaking, but from a global standpoint, I think that we have really done well in our communication about the presence and the impact of variants, as an example. Um, you know, when the beta variant came out of South Africa, when we saw the Delta variant coming out, we were able to capture or receive a lot of information, even at the beginning of the pandemic. I think China did a decent job at the beginning, even though there was resistance with our federal administration. Mm-hmm. A good job in terms of communicating. That's why we were able to progress through the development of a vaccine um, as quickly as we did. I think also in terms of the creation of COVAX, the international initiative aimed at creating more equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines, that certainly has helped to address disparities related to access. But what we have done a piss poor job of and sort of this global collection and sharing of data throughout both our country and throughout the globe. We don't have a universal way of tracking cases, hospitalizations, mm-hmm. and even deaths related to COVID. In this country alone, there are issues in terms of deaths, especially now when we see a lot of states not reporting out even basic information like percent positive. At least 13 states no longer report out their percent positive. So we have mm-hmm. no sense of what we're doing in terms of cases. Therefore, we have no sense of what may be happening in terms of death. We need to collect more demographic information in terms of age, race, condition, gender demographics, all of those things we need to know about globally as well as nationally. I also want to talk about, you know, the the inclusion of indirect deaths attributed to COVID. And I couldn't find in the data is how many deaths those were of this 15 million. So if you were able to find it or find a percentage, I would be interested. But I wonder, you know, based on based on uh, how many of those there may be, are there other lessons to be learned from those indirect deaths? You know, if they should spur us to handle disease outbreaks in a different way, more quickly, more in a more targeted way. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to act like I think some of these have got to just be inevitable, right? If you suddenly have hospitals filling up um, with patients with one particular malady. Uh, but but there must have been elements of this that were not inevitable. And I, I wonder what your initial takeaways are. No, absolutely. Um, when analyzing deaths that occurred back in 2020, there was a study that actually was published recently in the American Journal of Public Health that found that indirect deaths, the effect of the pandemic, such as social isolation, economic insecurity, and to your point, barriers to healthcare access, accounted for 16% of the excess deaths due to the pandemic. So this isn't directly COVID-related deaths, but the collateral damage resulting from COVID-19. And so what we know is of the excess deaths that happened in 2020, 84% of them were specifically due to COVID. 16% of them were due to what you just described. And we really have to pay attention to what the consequences of COVID-19 was, not just in terms of the, the, the infection itself, but in terms of issues related to access to care, to mental health services, and even a strained medical system. If our healthcare system had a stronger infrastructure and a way to sort of tease out and have a space specifically for COVID-19 patients, and then also able to maintain space for those who were suffering heart attacks, 
strokes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think if we had a stronger infrastructure, we would not see close to 20% of these excess deaths. What we also have to pay close attention to is the disparity related mm-hmm. to excess deaths. This same study reported out significant racial differences in excess deaths due to those indirect impacts that we talked about. 32% of excess deaths among African Americans were due to those indirect impacts. 23% of excess deaths among Native Americans were due to these indirect, and 16% Mm-hmm. Excess deaths within the Latinx community were due to these indirect collateral damage, if you will, mm-hmm. when it comes when it comes to um, evaluating all of the impacts of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. We really have to pay attention to the public health infrastructure. We have to pay attention to um, our social supports. All of those things really have to be discussed. We didn't even talk about. I didn't even talk about the mental health components. Mm-hmm. We also relate back to these uh, health, these excess death statistics. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, it they seem to, a lot of this points in the same direction, which is if, if the infrastructure is better to start with and the support is better to start with, all of these kinds of deaths will be minimized. Um, one thing that jumped out to me in particular, and I will admit, I, I just happened to be listening to a podcast about tetanus, um, which, boy, is a really horrible disease. And of course, if you've grown up where you just you got a vaccination when you were a kid and you never thought about it, you know, you, you you don't really recognize how awful that is. But I wanted to talk in particular about the effect of the pandemic on childhood vaccinations, because that seems like it has huge potential consequences. UNICEF reports that 23 million children didn't get routine childhood vaccinations in 2020, which is 3.7 million more than the year before. The disruption occurred across most countries, but the biggest impact was in Southeast Asia and the Eastern Mediterranean. And it just seems like with many parts of the world, you know, not ever really coming back to normal, but instead just sort of moving into a a post-pandemic uh, era of, of economic insecurity and even food insecurity, you know, it, it's not necessarily sure that those those kids who missed vaccinations will get them later on or that the vaccination programs will get back on track. And so I wonder how concerned we should be in particular about vaccination backsliding. I think we should be very concerned uh, for myself, both as a parent and as a pediatrician, that we've seen this trend happen for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, we shifted our focus. Our public health focus across the globe has been on infectious disease control, sanitation, safe water, all of those things, right? And when we shifted our attention away from all of those things to really focus our efforts on COVID, we did not think, what is the strategy to get us back to all of those issues? And you think about what's happening here in the United States, Families could not go in to get their children vaccinated at the beginning of the pandemic. And then afterwards, even here in this country, we didn't have a a space or a plan to recapture those families. We're also dealing with some vaccine hesitancy that was even worsened. It was already in existence prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. It certainly has worsened since COVID-19. There's a lack of trust in health infrastructure, both outside of and within this country. Particularly here, I've had conversations with families about their distrust of the CDC and how the mixed messages that the CDC has pushed out Mm-hmm. The past two years has now made them question the safety of our current vaccine, so much so that we saw a 15% drop in this country alone due to um, vaccine disruption. Mm-hmm. You look around the globe in terms of preventable and even possibly fatal childhood illnesses, one of the challenges is that if it's not proximal to you, meaning that 
if you have not experienced or a loved one or even a grandparent experienced some of these issues, you don't really have a strong perceived risk. But what we do know is that over the past year and a half, 25 countries have now reported cases of polio in the past year, particularly in Southeast Asia. We were at a point prior to the pandemic where we were close to eradicating polio. Mm-hmm. We now have at least 25 countries who are now reporting polio. That is frightening for me because there are physicians now that have not even been trained to recognize polio. If a case of polio showed up, there are a good number of doctors who wouldn't even be able to recognize it given how distant we are from these cases. Mm-hmm. I took care of little ones when I was training who we had a whole bay of babies who developed pertussis because a four-year-old showed up at a mommy and me program without his vaccine and mm. shared his gift with 20 newborn babies. Uh, oh my God. At least four of these little ones, two of them in the ICU. So I fully understand the direct consequence of little ones not being vaccinated from birth all the way through college age because we have to think about all the disease processes that these vaccines have been shown to protect against and have shown to be safe. We really have to put forth a strong public health effort in terms of addressing this particular gap. Yeah, I mean, there is nothing really... I've, I happen to listen to a particular podcast about infectious diseases and man, listening to the description of, of, you know, what the course of disease of tetanus actually is, especially in kids or t- diphtheria, whew, it really uh, puts some of this uh, childhood vaccination hesitancy into a different light. The other thing I wanted to talk about while we have you is global hunger. Um, according to a new report by the U.N., This is a combination, the UN, EU and some global hunger NGOs. The number of people experiencing crisis levels of hunger or worse across the globe rose by 40 million in 2021. That is a huge number, right? So the total is 193 million people in 53 countries or territories facing acute food security issues in 2021. It's a huge increase. And it continues a trajectory that, according to these reports, began in 2018. Since 2018, global hunger has just been ticking upward. And so I'm wondering, you know, what what are the public health interventions that are needed to stop this hunger? And what are the public health implications of allowing this to continue? What I would say is the solutions really require, require an integrated approach that includes um, areas of focus like environmental science. Public health is certainly playing a key role, but you also have to talk about the economic sector and the political sector, right? Doing things like improving agriculture to boost access to foods and to also boost income. Small farmers across the globe can't compete with companies like Monsanto. Mm-hmm. What are we doing collectively to allow them to be able to farm for themselves and for their community? Particularly for public health, it's addressing access to safe drinking water and improving sanitation and hygiene. This is like public health 101, but there are still places on on this globe where folks do not have access, even in this country, if we're yeah. ourselves, that do not have access to safe drinking water and standard sanitation practices. We know that lack of safe drinking water and poor sanitation can directly lead to waterborne diseases and chronic intestinal infections, which then facilitates even further depletion of nutrients. And it also impacts a person's ability to work when they or their children are sick. We know that the ability to create latrines and all these things directly help because if we don't have those systems in place, then that can contaminate whatever food systems that are available. This becomes an equity issue, right? We know that when women are empowered in the agricultural space, that that 
further facilitate improvement in terms of food access. There was data from the Food and Agriculture Organization that suggested that if we gave collectively women farmers equal access to resources as their male counterparts, we can increase food production by close to 30%. So this also becomes a very strong equity action. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that climate change is a huge issue when it comes to food insecurity and likely one of the main reasons why we're seeing such a significant increase. We have to both address climate change, but we also, in the midst of that, need to create systems, sustainable systems, agricultural systems, that will allow people who are growing food to adapt and become more resilient in these less predictable times when it comes to our weather. And we have to do an overarching review of and creation of policy that protects and facilitates all of those um, interventions that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to uh, the political question here, because it does seem like, again, at the, you know, you you travel a little ways down any road and it comes back to sort of political and economic decisions. But I want to ask before we get there about the the health implications of this report that obesity in Europe is at epidemic proportions. And I do say, you know, I know that obesity does not necessarily imply good nutrition, but it is a pretty damning juxtaposition here. And I thought it was funny also that the report flagged meal delivery apps as possibly contributing to the obesity problem. I mean, maybe that is true in Europe. I do not think that that is a major problem in the United States when you look at like where obesity is and who tends to be obese. But uh, so I want to ask you how seriously the developed world should be taking its obesity problem and really whether it is accurate to view it as a as a problem of luxury, which is what this food delivery app uh, thing would would imply. No, I, I certainly don't believe that it is a food app delivery service issue, both in terms of food insecurity and in terms of obesity. These are both perfect examples of what we call malnutrition defined as a lack of proper nutrition, either caused by not having enough to eat, not eating enough of the right things or being unable to use the food that one is that's available to them. And we see that a lot in uh, certain countries where farmers grow food and they are not able to keep any of that food because of the larger farming industry. And we have to take this very seriously. We're seeing this trend across the globe even before COVID-19. We know that obesity has been a longstanding epidemic. And to be honest with you, I feel like we're already in a pandemic space when it comes to obesity when you look across the globe. We know that obesity increases the risk of all kinds of nutritionally related chronic diseases like diabetes. Mm -hmm. disease and hypertension, not to mention the fiscal impact that obesity has. The price tag, Harvard just released a study last year showing that more than $170 billion in surplus medical care costs per year in Mm -hmm. this country alone are associated with obesity. So we really have to think about both the health implications and the financial implications when it comes to obesity across across the country and across the globe. What does that look like for us collectively? Mm-hmm. And I also wonder, you know, obviously look, looking at this, I mean, I, I I think it is more complicated because, as you say, these are both issues of of malnutrition and in some ways both issues of poverty. But also when you look at, you know, growing hunger in much of the world and growing obesity in a small segment of the world, a a sort of political issue hits you in the face. And I guess I'm curious, what is the role of public health organizations in promoting global equity? Right. If we are to look at these these two juxtaposed issues as a as an, a problem of inequity and one that has serious public health consequences. 
I think, again, it goes back to it being a collective approach. The job of addressing um, global equity in terms of food access and healthy food access, I have to specify, isn't simply housed in the area of public health, but really in all sectors. We know that health is in all policies. Therefore, policy drives food access, policy drives economics, and policy also drives development. The food industry itself, as it is integrated, particularly in this country, in our food policies, we know that they drive our food offerings and the affordability of food, and they directly influence food policy. Mm-hmm. Public health certainly serves as a partner. We collect the data. We report out the demographics so that we can clearly see when there are inequities and disparities. We also um, hold responsibility for the messaging and the development of strategies in order to tackle both of these significant health issues We also have to think about it in terms of also clinical medicine. What are we doing in creating health spaces for communities across the globe where we are assessing what is happening in terms of direct health implications? Really, one of my biggest concerns is what does this look like for our children? You talk about uh, food insecurity for our children. When you talk about obesity for our children, what is the space in which we will create for them when they become adults, knowing what the risk is for them in both of those health categories as it relates to their educational success, their economic success, and their life expectancy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Hancock, a pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist, always appreciate having you on the show. Where should our listeners go to find more of your work? You can find me at my website, www.askdryola.com. I'm on social media at A-S-K-D-R-Y-O-L-A. Thanks again so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits, but we'll come back and we'll still be on Radio Sputnik and live in D.C. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kuriaku, getting into some uh, techie, wonky, cryptic stories today. We've got a couple of uh, genuinely frightening, I don't want to make light of them, genuinely frightening stories about data harvesting and data sales. And then we are also going to check in on um, a significant crypto experiment in the world Joining us for both of these conversations is Chris Garafa, technologist and editor of techforthepeople.org. Thanks for being here, Chris. Oh, great to be with you again. Thank you. So let us talk about this very sinister ripple through social media yesterday as people began warning about the possibility of sex, location, and lifestyle data, basically all, any data your phone collects, being collected and sold to people trying to track women who might be seeking an abortion. And they were warning about the possibility of this, not necessarily that it is actually happening. But then Vice reported yesterday that it cost their reporter about $160 to get a week's worth of data on where people who visited Planned Parenthood came from and where they went afterward. And it occurs to me that if you are in a state with laws like the one in Texas that is uh, making its way through the courts right now that empowers individuals to sue other individuals who help someone get an abortion, this data could be very, very valuable. And so I, I want to start um, slightly generally, Chris, and just ask you about 
how this data is collected, how easily it could be de-anonymized, and whether you think there are companies that are already involved in this process. Oh, we absolutely know that there are companies who do this. Uh, SafeGraph is the one that everyone's been talking about over the past few days in particular. But there are really two separate issues that we're talking about uh, in in the specifically the discussion around um, you know the draft ruling from the Supreme Court that could overturn Roe. So first, there's the issue of location, and actually I'll come back to that in a second. But the second issue is the period tracker apps, and there are so many of these. Some you know one of the big ones Flow, and there's a lot of others that you might have. And there are very good reasons to want to use these. If you have an irregular period, if you just you know want to track your symptoms month to month, week to week, um, try to get a sense of when you're fertile or not, if you're trying to conceive or not conceive, mm-hmm. um, see how weight or whatever it is, is you know impacting um, your body. So what you often would do is, is um, and, you know, put in and track as much or as little information as you wanted. You could yeah. do body temperatures, all sorts of things, you know, flow and all of that, um, you know, and sexual activity. Mm. Now, these period tracker apps, they're private companies that run these. They are not bound to holding your data. They're not doctors. There's no HIPAA, you know, requirements mm-hmm. here. They can sell that information, whether um, identifiable to you or anonymized to anyone if they want to. And they could sell it to somebody who is looking to take advantage, for example, of the law in, I believe it's Texas, where Mm -hmm. you can sue somebody for $10,000 for seeking or abetting somebody and getting an abortion. So that's one thing that could happen. And it's not that hard to de-anonymize data when you have enough of it. And you can buy thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of records for very little money, as Joseph Cox at uh, Motherboard has shown us and actually has shown us time again. I think he does some really amazing work in this this field. Now, the other issue not directly related to the ability to track uh, specific you know, sexual health and activity is location. So that's related but separate because that's also being tracked and that's not just being done by specific apps uh you know for you know tracking periods that's done by practically every app and in fact it's more insidious than that because it's usually not done by the app itself but by a package a a software development kit or multiple that the developer will include in their app and often this helps them track you know usage it's like google analytics right It helps the website owner or the app owner track how many people are using it, what pages or features they're using, how long they stay in the app, where things crash, stuff like that. But it also can send that location information back to the company that created the SDK. And in some some cases, the developer won't even know until unless they've done their research and actually read like the privacy policies Mm -hmm. and things like that. So the location data, and there was a great story recently or a year or two ago in the New York Times that, ex- that showed exactly how to do this. Even if it's anonymized, if you look at, if you map it out and you start looking at patterns, you can see this person starts here or there's a, a signal that starts here every day, goes to this place, goes to that place, and then goes back to the first place. But sometimes it goes at the end of the day, it goes to another place in the mo- you know at the end of the day and doesn't go you know, to the original starting point. So you can assume, okay, that's maybe one person who uh, maybe sees their partner and stays there a couple nights a week, and here's where they work, and here's where they live. Okay, well, if you know where somebody approximately lives and works with a little bit of research, it's not going to be that hard to figure out 
who that person is. And the New York Times, again, actually did this and showed how how easy it was to do that using only a data dump uh, from one of these companies and other public information like Facebook profiles, LinkedIn, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it wouldn't be hard, in fact, for something like that to happen. Uh, a few uh, uh, recently, I forget when it was, but it wasn't too uh, too much in the past. A priest was actually outed because a Catholic uh, magazine had gotten information, location information from the gay dating app Grinder that yeah. showed him going to gay clubs and then going to other people's homes. Mm -hmm. And they were able to de-anonymize that enough to show wow. that it was him. And in so he was uh, basically kicked out of the church. So that's the second main concern here is that, you know, these in this information, first of all, the concern is that it's tracked in the first place. Mm -hmm. And why is it tracked? It's to see, okay, here's where people are going and when, and let's see if they're, you know, near this kind of business or if they're going to this kind of business every day, what kind of restaurants do they like? What sh stores do they shop at? So we can target them with more ads. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. This whole idea that you can, you know, buy the location data, uh, even if it's anonymized, is in a sense secondary to these companies. They don't care necessarily about uh, people using this for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. They just care that they can sell it to somebody else who's going to use it to make some money themselves. And is that where SafeGraph, the company SafeGraph, comes into the process? Like, It's not an app that is collecting the data. It, it would be a purchaser of the data who's then looking at it and sort of aggregating it into different packages that will appeal to different companies. Am I, am I right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Safe, uh, Safegraph was one is one of these aggregator companies. Um, they will, you know, put it all together, and they actually have those SDKs themselves, and they get it from others. So they aggregate all of this information uh, and repackage it and resell it. Mm -hmm. I want to SafeGraph, by the way, I, I just noticed they've said, uh, oh, we're glad we got called out. We're going to make some changes to our programs, which, you know, whatever. You can believe that if you if you want to. But I want to ask, you know, uh, what solutions are there besides individual vigilance right now? You know, deleting these period tracker apps and uh, frankly, over my cold, dead body. Right. <laughs> like that, they are very handy. Um, and so, you know, it, it, would a realistic solution be to ring fence certain kinds of data and protect it? Or is the solution to just say, hey, you cannot th this should not be a commodity? Yeah, right now, the solution would be to say you cannot sell or even collect this data without very specific purposes. You mm -hmm. cannot just pick up where somebody's going and how often they go there and all of those things and then resell that information. You know, some places need to know where you are. You're trying to get uh, a train, you're trying to get maps, you know, sure, trying to get transport Uber, apps. Right? Yeah. You, you, you know, you kind of have to have your location services on for that. And they kind of need to know where you are. And they're obviously like an Uber or Lyft going to have a history of your trips for financial reasons, for whatever it is. But, you know, using a, a prayer app, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that was one of the things. Yeah. And the U.S. military bought information that originally came from a Muslim prayer app to track people in the Middle East. That happened also in the last year. So the whole idea that this is even a commodity that can be taken advantage of, uh, that should be banned entirely. There needs to be there's need to be, you know, some real oversight um, at a the high, you know, highest levels to say, like, 
let's make sure that you are not collecting this information. And if you have it, explain whose it is, why you have it, and then delete it. How should we feel about then the CDC's relationship with uh, this company SafeGraph, right? Vice was also reporting that the CDC sucked up a whole bunch of location and movement data with the stated purpose of, of tracking compliance with COVID restrictions and, and helping assess the effectiveness of those restrictions, which sounds useful and valid. But uh, it's also raised that uh, it intended to use this data for other purposes. And of course, you know, we've mentioned the risk of de-anonymization. And so I wonder if we should be concerned about, you know, some aspect of these data purchases and not others and concerned about this relationship with the company SafeGraph. No, we still have to be concerned about the CDC also buying this kind of information. But this is one of those things where we get into the case that there are the questions of when could this be useful? Yeah. And ideally, right, it would be actually very useful to have truly anonymized information where you can track patient zero. Or yeah. you can go and see where is this spreading, what, you know, whether it's COVID-19 or something entirely different. Where is it spreading? Where do we need to focus our efforts now? And where should, be, where should we be focusing next? And also to learn from previous, uh, you know, disease responses. I mean, that would be a really significant move and a real gain uh, of, from this type of data. But I do not trust the current U.S. government, and I'm not just saying Biden, I, the, right. the, the system, I do not trust the current system to use that. Well, like we just said, the military bought location data to target people in the Middle East mm-hmm. um, from a Muslim prayer app. I mean, that's the same system, right? Yeah. Now, I'm sure people at the CDC are thinking, you know, we're doing something good here. Uh, I mean, very questionable, by the way, that like this program was started on the Navajo Nation. Like, yes. As, as if the Navajo Nation and other indigenous people are not under enough surveillance as it is right. and don't have a history already or they have a history already of medical experimentation. Uh, just awful, awful things that have mm-hmm. been done to indigenous people for hundreds of years that continue to this day. You know, mm-hmm. this is one of those things. So, no, there is there could be. In an ideal world, fantastic uses for this kind of system to actually monitor and track, um, you know, the 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 progress of diseases. I mean, another way they do it right now that's not like this and it's not invasive is wastewater analysis. Mm-hmm. Throughout COVID nineteen, they've been, you know, uh, cities across the country and municipal water agencies have been analyzing the wastewater that comes from our homes and businesses to see the levels of COVID-19. They can even apparently do it for drugs to see where, you know, does it correlate with where overdoses are, uh, you know, historically. So that's, you know, a really interesting application of the idea of tracing this kind of, you know, outbreak. But again, I, I do not trust the system um, to be using this very precise location data uh, as it is. And I wish for a world and we should try to build a world where we could trust limited use mm-hmm. of information by public agencies that are actually under the control and oversight of the people who are affected by them. But yeah. that's not where we're at today. No. And that's the problem. You know, again, there there are some really uh, legitimate and potentially extremely helpful uses for this data, but it does seem like uh, so many of the organizations involved in 
uh, procuring and then selling it have just demonstrated over and over that they are not to be trusted. And I kind of want to I want to come back to, uh, you know, data about how people move around uh, um, abortion access and, and talk about the market for this data. Because, of course, we know, you know, different apps collect it, uh, different apps sell it, companies buy it for different reasons. But this is all sort of a, a business to business. Right. And it does make me wonder if laws like Texas's abortion law, which, again, incentivizes individuals to sue other individuals, if this potentially opens up a new frontier or a new market for some of this data, especially, again, when Vice is pointing out it costs $160, you know, it could be that people will be happy enough to make that investment and do, you know, some some tech legwork to de-anonymize the data uh, to make $10,000 potentially. Yeah, we already know that anti-abortion groups are not you know, stuck in the Middle Ages when it comes to their use of technology. There have Mm -hmm. been apps in the past, uh, fertility apps, that actually push people to, you know, if you're pregnant, here's here's your options, and you should go see this doctor, push them towards uh, crisis pregnancy centers, these just malicious places that try to, Mm -hmm. you know, that basically put people off until it's too late for them to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And they've done that in the past. And actually, uh, you know, Miss Magazine looked at that, I believe, in 2016. And the article has been spreading again. So that's you know this is something that the 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 right and the the you know anti-abortion activists are already you know involved in, and it's another reason to just be really wary of what app you're tracking uh, or what app you're using on your phone. Mm-hmm. Man, that is sinister. I also want to ask you, Chris. We'll switch gears here a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, El Salvador, of course is in the midst of a great Bitcoin experiment. And a recent report in uh, the Protocol's newsletter uh, didn't didn't have a very, uh, didn't assess it as having been very successful so far. Seems like despite the government's promotion of the cryptocurrency as legal tender, it really hadn't been taken up very much by the population. And so I wanted to, you know, first of all, just get an update from you as to how that seems to be going. But the follow-up question is, if it is a big bust, right? If no one, if everyone in El Salvador sort of picks up the wallet and gets the 30 bucks that are in it, but doesn't really use the cryptocurrency, is anyone really hurt by this if it goes bust? Or is someone going to, is someone going to lose big if El Salvador, uh, if Bitcoin doesn't take off in El Salvador? Well, the investors are going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> Companies like El Zonte Capital, uh, and others who have invested in this. And this is not, you know, this is something that the government supports, particularly with, you know, they call it Bitcoin Beach. And I think we talked about it recently. Um, you know, that's really been a private program that the government has been endorsing at El Zante. Uh, but the, you know, there is this national plan that, again, the government has been working on. And it's no, it's not going well. They're not getting a lot of usage um, through the so-called Bitcoin law. But I think we need to look at why a lot of countries, especially you know, in the, the you know the global South, so to say, are looking to Bitcoin. One reason in particular is sanctions. I mean, last year uh, the U.S. government imposed sanctions on a couple of uh, El Salvadoran government officials and basically warned the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele. Um, of further sanctions, claiming that he, you know, is basically giving money or bribing MS-13 and Barrio 18, these mm-hmm. two kind of, um, you know, big gangs, um, you know, to 
hide their murders better, basically, is what it comes down mm-hmm. to. So countries like North Korea and, you know, El Salvador, Cuba, Venezuela, um, you know, across the, the political spectrum are seeing and that they're, you know, it's very easy to cut them off of the global uh you know, the global economic system. So mm-hmm. they're trying to find other ways to go about their business. Mm-hmm. But there's so much involved with getting involved in um, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And ultimately, do you have people who will take that Bitcoin, yeah. right? Maybe the shop down the street will, does your landlord, does the international company that you're trying to buy supplies from or food? You know, we live in this global economy that, be, you know, for you know many reasons is led by the US dollar and there are struggles and there are moves internationally to change and challenge that but ultimately right now the reality is if you can't use the US dollar you are really being shut out of so much of the world market so i think that's why el salvador and so many other countries are trying to do this but unfortunately no it is not working out well for them chivo which apparently is salvadoran slang for cool according to its report from protocol yeah. um you know, is just, you know, not getting used much at all. I mean, a small percentage of people are using it on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk on this program, we have talked in the past about two um, real crypto evangelists, and they also talk about its utility. You know, you, you were discussing this on a on the level of the, the nation state. Uh, other experts have, have sort of... Uh, applied that to the individual level, you know, the ability to send remittances more easily back to family, the ability to sort of uh, free your own personal finances from the flux- fluctuations of state currency. And, uh, you know, again, all of those are understandable, uh, understandable goals, but it is difficult when you are saying, you know, okay, I'm going to take my, you know, to pull my money out of my state currency that might be, you know, also pretty, um, volatile, but put into into this other currency that really at any moment could just, it could just have no value whatsoever, right? It, it seems like possibly out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the argument that we hear all the time that, you know, Bitcoin is going to be liberatory, that it doesn't require a central bank or a financial system. But again, it ignores the questions of, first of all, you know, uptake, who's taking it, who's using it, um, who, you know, and also the question of, is it easy enough to use? I mean, El, going back to El Zonte, it's a poor, you know, relatively poor beach town. Um, and so you have to have, you know, certain amounts of connectivity and, you know, technology like a cell phone, which of course many people do have in order to, you know, have a Bitcoin wallet and to send and receive money. But the question again is, are you going to be able to use that. Do you have a place to cash it out to dollars or another currency if you need it? Do you have partners who are going to accept Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency? And, you know, the idea of it not being tied to the fluctuations of global markets, we can just look at the, you know, the the prices of Bitcoin over the last few years and see it has crashed. It has gone up. It has crashed and gone up just like the U.S. dollar, just like the euro, just like the ruble, just like so many other currencies. It is not immune to the fact that it still exists in an economic system of capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was Chris Garafa. Chris, always great to talk to you. Uh, Where should our listeners go to find more of your work? You can find me here on this network every Tuesday on By Any Means Necessary at techforthepeople.org. And I'm now also the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. So look for that on Mondays.
Super cool, Chris. Okay, thank you for joining us. We're going to say goodbye to technologist Chris Garafa, but we're not going to say goodbye to you guys just yet. And I have a totally inconsequential but very funny story for you, John. <laughs> it's about Drake and about revenge. This Uh-oh. is a delisted, which I used to be genuinely addicted to. It's a celebrity gossip website, and I had to go through a process like 10 years ago of forcing myself not to click on it every like three minutes when I was doing computer work. So now I just look in from time to time. Um, So Drake, uh, he was a a basketball fan, uh, felt the need to defend the father of Memphis Grizzlies point guard Joe Morant against haters who believed that the father was doing too much on the sidelines during his son's games. Uh, And so I guess... Some some dude started trolling him for defending the the father of this NBA player, right? Trolling him on on uh, on social media. Uh, Drake's revenge was to follow his wife on Instagram, <laughs> which is pretty funny. I thought that was pretty great. Yeah. Wow, that's exactly something I would do. I thought I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, he said, "I just followed you, girl, because she's probably miserable and needs some excitement in her life." <laughs> Pretty good. You know what? That's I'm, great. I'm, I'm ambivalent on Drake, but that was pretty funny. Yep. Oh, I like that very much. What else we got going on, John? Um, I've been reading a lot of political uh, news just to give you a little update on on Madison Cawthorn. Oh, my and God. Forgive it's me. Cawthorn watch. OK, no, no, uh, but, please. But uh, a story just dropped at Politico saying, you know, we're all having fun watching Madison Cawthorn just fall apart. We're all right? having a good time. It's all, yeah. it's all it's, in fun. It's bringing the nation together. It is. But right. there's an odd law in North Carolina uh, saying that if a candidate wins 30 percent, only 30 percent, then there's no runoff. So he's now dropped to 38 percent in the polls. The uh, North Carolina primary is May 17th. Uh, so even though he's wildly unpopular mm-hmm. in his own district, there are so many Republicans running against him that they could, they could conceivably, all... yeah, split yes. the vote. Yeah, and he wins the whole kit and caboodle with thirty percent. Yeah. Hmm. So don't don't count this guy out. He may pull this thing out. He might be down for whatever, <laughs> but he's not out. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we, but John, it's it's probably been 24 whole hours since we mentioned Elon Musk. Right. So it seems uh, worth it. I, again, the fact that the Musk Twitter fracas deal gets such import mm-hmm. is pretty remarkable to me. I mean, I, I think that all of the sort of, uh, in, in you know, ripple effects of it and the, the issues it raises, you know, with regard to free speech and social media and, and how we should consider these media platforms. Those are important. But like the the intricacies of this deal, and again, the idea, all of this also sort of presupposes that Musk really is a, a defender of free speech, which I'm pretty sure is going to be revealed to have serious limitations right. once he is actually running Twitter. But like news that Elon Musk had gotten uh, seven point something billion more dollars for this deal was the second headline on the New York Times yes. this morning. Yes. That's whack. Yes. Uh, but I, I thought you might enjoy where some of that is coming from. Uh, it's there's a big chunk coming from a subsidiary of the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar. Oh, for heaven's sake. So they're getting in there with Saudi Arabia to help defend yeah. free speech in the United oh, States. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Upstanding. Yeah, this is this is bad. I'm going to put in a quick plug for for panquake.com. Okay. 
And I'm going to say that I've become something of a spokesman for Panquake. But, uh, you know, Panquake is set up, and we could talk about this at some future time, but Panquake is set up so that it really is transparent and free speech, and it's hosted in Iceland, and they even use geyser, you know, energy to to power the doggone thing and blockchain-based and... Yeah, I'm hoping that um, that Panquake turns into an alternative to Twitter because we're not going to get anywhere with Twitter. There isn't going to be free speech mm-hmm. in this country. There mm-hmm. just isn't. Well, like, online, every day we talk about this and it's worse and worse and worse, even if it is just incremental. It's getting worse. Yeah. The idea that, you know, that anyone is really taking seriously this this disinformation board. Seriously. Which is now yeah. the downgraded yeah, to a working group is is outrageous. Yeah. I also how badly did they well, we only have 10 seconds to talk about it. But again, just remarkable. I do think, you know, we do we do tend a lot to uh, slam Democrats for, you know, not for, for the substance of their of their work. Mm-hmm. Right. But man. It is true that they are bad at messaging. It's bad. They really have messed this up. Yes. I think you guys may maybe you need to pay more for your consultants. I don't know. I don't know what this is. Mayorkas deserved what he got in the Senate yesterday. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, we got to wrap it up there, folks. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to the producers and engineers here at Radio Sputnik. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>